Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello. This is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I am very lucky to have with me today Michael Rosen. Now, Michael Rosen is one of the world's best-loved children's authors. He was extremely ill with COVID-19. He nearly died because of COVID-19. He was hospitalised for a very long time. He's recovering. He's still suffering the consequences, though. So I spoke to him about his new book, Many Different Kinds of Love, a story of life, death and the NHS. A beautiful book, as you'd expect from a brilliant writer. Uh, I spoke to him about his near-death experience, about what he went through, about what he's learned about the stigma of death, which we find very difficult to talk about, about the National Health Service, about the government's catastrophic handling of the pandemic. Uh, so it's a really interesting, it's a fascinating, in fact, very personal uh, interview, uh, which I really, really recommend. It's a life-affirming interview. Uh, as ever, we really appreciate your support. Um, you make this channel, this podcast possible. On patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84, you can suggest interviewees, topics. We have a documentary which we've put a lot of time and effort into on the COVID 19 profiteers. We've made a packet out of this crisis. Uh, or you can use the supporter function in the description. Uh, and all support is very much appreciated. Do give us five stars if you can on the podcast and subscribe. With that done, here's Michael Rosen. Michael, it is wonderful to see you looking very well. Firstly, how just tell me how you're doing at the moment. How how life it where are we? In March, it's nearly a year since the pandemic happened and everything that happened, of course, with you. So just tell me tell me how you feel and how you're feeling about everything. Um well I'll do the the kind of moaning bit first, if you like. That's uh, what my <laughs> dad would call the kvetch. So we'll have a, a little moaning bit. So this eye doesn't really see very well. You, you know when you have a shower curtain and you can sort of, or no, I know, when the mirror steams up in the, when you've had a shower and you can see the sort of what you can see, but it's all sort of steamed up. Well, that's what this eye is like. This ear, um, they technically tell me that there's a very narrow band of megahertz is all I can hear. So if, you were, if I block that ear up completely and you sang high-pitched into that ear, I um, won't, I promise. 99. If you did that, I could hear 99. But if you put it down low, I wouldn't be able to hear it. So that's the year. Um, my toes are numb. There we are. There's an interesting thing. Um, so it feels as when I walk about in bare feet, as if somehow or other there's like a cushion under my toes. It sort of feels as if there are sort of secret pads underneath mm -hmm. my toes. Um, I... I think I'm more breathless than I was before I got ill. So if I go for a walk in Muswell Hill, which, you know, the name's a bit of a giveaway. There are hills here. And so um, I do get breathless, but I don't get as tired as I used to. Uh, I get a bit dizzy. I get a bit joint ache. And as you'll see in this interview, there'll be times when I forget something that you think, blimey, why has he forgotten that? So that's either because I'm 74 or because that's a little bit of uh, COVID memory. So one of the things that uh, I had a whole little bout of not being able to remember <laughs> were Hollywood stars' names. It, it actually got to be quite funny. It started off by being, well, who's that bloke who's in Mission Impossible, who, who's always running? And then every now and then he, he deals with the mafia and people like that. And he's, 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 he's yeah. into Scientology. And uh, I saw him on the Graham Norton show. What's his name? What's his name? And I sat there for a whole evening trying to remember Tom Cruise's name. <laughs> oh, well, it's something about Tom Cruise, not me. And then the next day I forgot Meryl Streep. So I kind of struggled with 
Meryl Streep, and I thinking of all the movies that I'd like her in because I really admire Meryl Streep, and I and I was trying to think, you know, what is her name? Didn't get it, and then the killer. I forgot George Clooney's name. Ah, oh, so, George Clooney. I know. So oh, I, I walked about. Exactly. So I walked about going Nespresso. What else? And I <laughs> remember his name. So I decided that one of the symptoms of long COVID for me is Hollywood forgetting syndrome. It's, it's a symptom that isn't discussed enough. Hollywood no. star forgetful syndrome. It, Never it, spoken about. They always spoke no. about the smell, the taste. Never the big one. That's the one. I'm going to the consultants over this. I'll have to set up an, a special appointment. And um, and if the World it. Health Organization are listening. Do something. Come on. Yeah. And also, it'd be vital to reach out to find other people with Hollywood forgetful syndrome. <laughs> a support group needs to be set up, essentially. HFS. <laughs> HFS. <laughs> Um, before we talk about what you went through, I mean, it, obviously this wonderful book, which everyone needs to buy and read, many different kinds of love, life, death, and the NHS. Before we talk about that, I mean, I mean, maybe this is a cliche question, but it's, I'm interested in it, so I want to ask you about it. I mean, death is a big, big taboo to talk about. We find it very difficult. We don't really have the vocabulary for it. When someone actually dies, you know, even, even though I, I think of my own relatives, lots of people have died, you know, however many of your friends' relatives die, you still don't really know how to talk about it. And obviously, you, you went through a near-death experience. But what's your thoughts about about why it's so taboo? Why it's so complicated? Why do we don't have the vocabulary? We feel very uncomfortable talking about it. What do you? Why do you think that is? In in in, in the context of what you went through in your book, of course, your wonderful book. In a way, I think that our taboo about death is actually connected to the decline of religion. So I'm not religious, but if you think about it, in most religions, um, there are procedures, there are rituals connected with death, whether that's you go to the place of worship or traditionally, um, say, for example, with Irish Catholic, uh, in the Irish Catholic tradition, you brought the dead body back to the house and if you look back in the 19th century, people had wakes. Um, and so the idea of the having a body in the home that, were, that was laid out and that there were a set of things that you did, you might even sit round or you put the body in the front room, in the sitting room, and visitors came in. Um, in the Jewish tradition, you have sitting shiva, uh, where, of course, the body wasn't there, but there was a, a, a there is, I shouldn't say was, uh, for any of these things. So there, there are rituals uh, around all these different ways of dealing with death. And then in the, with the decline of religion, there hasn't really, if you like, there, there isn't much that's moved into the space. We, we have funerals. I mean, I've attended funerals of lots of people. Quite often, there's no coffin. Um, and there's lots of wonderful tributes, but what what it really means is that we've got distanced from the physicality of death. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how many people can say that they've touched a dead body other than people who work in morgues and funeral parlours and obviously in the, in the NHS, in the hospital system, but most people, by and large, don't touch a dead body mm -hmm. anymore. So... That's culturally, I think, culturally where we've got to. Now, as it happens, I've done those things. I watched my mum die, and also I handled, I was the first person to handle my son uh, when I went in to see him in the morning that he died. And so I feel, in some ways, privileged is silly, but I'm in a, in a slightly different position from quite a lot of people uh, in our secular society and also it's probably a bit of a function of urban society as well because obviously if you work on a farm you get very used to animals dying and um that's that's got to, i mean we some, we see sometimes see pets dying i guess in cities but it's maybe not quite the same as seeing a horse or a cow and mm. great big animals dying that's very very affecting you know so that's a long answer to your question but a very eloquent and thorough, and I would say satisfactory answer. Um, I mean, let's think about it then. So it's a year since the pandemic 
Well, it's not. I mean, it's over a year since it was a na- called a pandemic by the World Health Organization. But we started 2020, rumblings in the distance. Uh, you know, for a while, it was seen this bizarre, nightmarish situation happening in Wuhan. People being welded into their homes. What on earth is going on? And then it just became this hot, you know, then it was suddenly the outbreak, you know, it was Iran, uh, South Korea, then it was Northern Italy. And people came up with all these comforting rationalizations. They're older in Italy. They kiss each other when they meet. Uh, they live at home with their parents, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in March, obviously, things began to deteriorate very quite dramatically here in, in Britain. We had the panic buying who can forget the mass panic bang of toilet roll at the beginning of March. What were you, what were you thinking back then? What was your sense of, of, you know, in March last year, a year ago, what did you think about the, you know, how dangerous this pandemic was, how the government seemed to be handling it at the time? I mean, you went on radio at the time to talk about it before you went to hospital. What was your, what was your sense of what was happening and, and your thoughts at that particular point before, just before lockdown? I wish I could say that I was being wise and and understood it. I think there were two things when I've been back through my tweets and comments on social media, the two things that were beginning to trouble me. I'm not going to pretend that there was any more foresight than that. Um, and one was that it was clear that in the air, people were saying things along the lines that, well, this only is serious for people who are old or who have, quote, underlying health problems. And people were saying this in the public space and repeating it. And I remember being very disconcerted about that. And I think that's why I ended up on March the 10th uh, on the Today programme talking about that, where I had a very strange conversation. Uh, Martha Carney was uh, chairing, was was the uh, anchor, and uh, a woman, I'm very sorry, I've forgotten her name, who wanted to say, and it's a legitimate feeling that older people have, that, as it were, talking to death and saying, look here, death, if you're going to take somebody, take me, don't take my grandchildren. And she was expressing that view. And, you know, this I can understand why a person might feel that. You look at your grandchildren or children and just think, well, I've had a good run, you know, don't, don't take them, you know. Um, it's kind of something about the sort of sequence of life and death and so on. People think that. Um, but I remember saying, well, actually, I sort of looked in the distance and said, I want to live, not knowing that almost certainly at that moment I was either infected with COVID or that's actually where I caught it, because BBC Studios is not um, you know, very well ventilated. Um, so that was one moment that I can remember very clearly. And the other was that already people were talking about herd immunity without vaccination. So just to be clear about this, herd immunity without vaccination for human beings is basically rubbish Hmm. because human beings live internationally, certainly, you know, in the urban world, in Europe, America, and, you know, in China, you know, most places of the world, apart from very rural areas, but, you know, we live internationally. So the idea that you can create a herd, in other words, sort of self-contained, discrete unit of human beings quite absurd the idea that if the whole herd get infected that by and large most of them will become immune almost sort of straight away again is is rubbish it's bad biology because um there's obviously as we know viruses and bacteria uh, mutate very quickly uh, and also you never know how long the immunity lasts and here we were talking about a SARS virus and we know with the common cold um, you know, we're immune to a cold one year, we become immune, and then bump along comes another one. And we may or may not be have the immune response uh, to it. So all that, and then meanwhile, I mean, the idea that there was a group of people in a society who were sacrificable, you know, I, I mean, on March the 13th, Three government scientists came on telly and the radio and advocated very strongly for creating herd immunity. You can look it up, Newsnight, Today programme, three of them, I won't name them, but they came on the, the media and they did a big push. And if you think it was only 11 days earlier that Boris Johnson was walking around saying that he was 
shaking hands with people and shaking yeah. hands with uh, some coronavirus, people with coronavirus, whether he had or he hadn't is under dispute. And a month earlier than that, in his Greenwich speech, <clears throat> he had distinguished between what he called market segregation, a very strange term that he must have invented, and then letting the free market run in the face of the coronavirus. So he obviously had a, a double position there. He was talking about how he was going to go for letting the market run in the face of the coronavirus rather than market segregation, in other words, state intervention, which is what, in fact, the WHO, World Health Organization, was calling for. And then you put that with the most strange interview he had with Holly Willoughby and uh, Philip Schofield, in which he did describe, on the one hand, how you could let the infection, let rip, let it rip, he said, mm -hmm. but we're going to balance that, that was his word, balance that with measures. Now, if you investigate that biologically, epide epide I can't say the word, but you know, from the point of view of an epidemic, what does it mean to balance letting it rip with measures? Well, either you have measures or you let it rip. So it's a complete befuddlement of what he was saying, but of course he was in a way flying a kite for letting it rip. So my analysis of all this is that from about through February, up until the first lockdown, they were in effect toying with herd immunity without vaccination. By toying with it, they weren't doing what they should have been doing, which was putting big measures in place like test, trace and isolate, like beginning to do a combination of mask, social distancing um, and washing hands, which of course they did go on about. Um, but the reason why they didn't put that in place was because they were holding up the idea that we would be different from these people, these silly people over there in the Far East, you know, over there, British exceptionalism, that what we'll do is, is we're going to go for this herd immunity. We're not going to market segregate in the face of coronavirus. And I'm, I've, I've decided that it actually it's laissez-faire genocide, that what they were doing was saying they were prepared to sacrifice oldies and us oldies and people with whatever they are underlying health problems i mean in a way everybody's got an underlying health problem life is an underlying health problem <laughs> i mean really so you know that's where i stand on february and march 2020 i'm so glad you said that about underlying health conditions because i think of all the kind of language bandied around during the pandemic that's been amongst the most misleading because I think a lot of people interpret it as at death's door and it doesn't mean that at all. Millions of people have what are called underlying health conditions. In the US, a quarter of all people under the age of 65 have underlying health conditions. Uh, it doesn't mean you're about to die. It just means you have one of a range of extremely common health conditions, which if you're infected with COVID-19, you're more likely to get seriously ill or to die with. Uh, but it, it definitely collided with a pretty grim social Darwinian view, which some on the right certainly have. Do you want to just talk about well, that? Just, just say something else to that. And, and it became a way in which when somebody died, people responded by saying, oh, well, she had whatever it might be, asthma, as if somehow or other, you know, asthma's a killer. You know, we've got these things you know, and people can get through life with asthma, you know, the footballers with asthma, you know. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, oh, well, an illness comes and because you've got asthma, then you deserve to die. I mean, this is the effect. And, um, I mean, something happened to me, a journalist, I won't name her. Uh, this was after, obviously, I've, I've come out of hospital and I was on Twitter, on social media. And she had just rather sort of uh, triumphantly had spotted a news item uh, in which uh, it claimed that people had exaggerated long COVID. And she was saying, you know, they are, you see, these people have got long COVID, it's, it's, these lurid descriptions. So I tweeted back saying, yeah, I made it all up. I was hiding under the table, you see. And she came back, I mean, this is very important. She came back and her tweet was, but you're 74. Oh, for f sorry, that is... So I then said, what's but about being 74? As it happened, she's 66. And I've sort of got this idea that people have got a hierarchy of worth. And you basically cross 70 and, you know, you're, you're less worthy. 
Now, you know, me and you, we've talked about racism and sexism and all the kind of isms to do with the body. And, you know, we've over the last 40 years, you know, since the 60s, we've sort of developed all this stuff, all these thoughts about it. You know, I can remember sort of sitting down at the feet of people like Julius Lester or Stokely Carmichael and, you know, and feminists and discovering these sections of the population being less valid and how we had to think about all this stuff. And suddenly I was in a, in a, in a, in a group of the over 70s involving millions who were being deemed less worthy. Mm-hmm. And in actual fact, you know, I would argue there's been not just discrimination, but actually a form of persecution. Mm-hmm. And indeed, whatever words you want to use, but the consequences mass death for this section of the population. I mean, I wasn't ready for it mentally, socially, anything. To the, and to the idea that I'm having a conversation with a woman who appears regularly on the TV you know, on argument and discussion programs, saying, but you're 74. I mean, just the fact that the word but came to mind as a sort of, if you like, a kind of focus of normality. But you're 74. I carry it around with me now, the idea. I should have a badge, actually, yeah. Oh, that's it, yeah, yes. I, mean, I should have a badge saying, but I'm 74 on it. <laughs> I, did, I mean, some of the, I mean, I saw some, um, you know, some of the more prominent ghoulish covid deniers like i'm not i won't name them partly because they thrive in that kind of stuff but i just thought you know what just seeing them using their platforms talking about dismissing people over the age of 60 i mean i'm not you know one case they're what they're 53 52 themselves are they saying in eight years time their life will suddenly be deemed meaningless probably when they get to the age they won't think that i would i would suspect uh but the fact they use their public platforms despite not being that far away from that particular age, but I mean, it's just just horrendous. In terms of, do you want to talk, I mean, you must be sick of talking about it, Michael, I'm guessing, but do you want to talk a bit about, about becoming ill, seriously ill, very seriously ill with COVID-19 and then, and then being hospitalized. And obviously you were there at the Whittington Hospital, um, a great hospital, which lots of people had to campaign in order to, to defend it various times in north london but do you, do you just tell tell us a bit about that as much as you're not sick of talking about it yeah no no it's absolutely fine so i got what felt like flu i mean that's that's the nearest thing that i noticed other than that i was finding it difficult to breathe but i didn't have a cough and as persistent cough was sort of one of the symptoms i, I was sort of not that bothered about it but i did know that i, I was kind of dipping that, that, um, Emma, my wife, she, she, I remember her opening the window and I'm sat, I said to her, I'm trying to catch up. Now, the advice at this point was that you weren't to go to your GP, you weren't to just pile down to A&E, uh, the pressure was mounting, so you had to dial, uh, you, had to, <laughs> that takes me, uh, you had to call 111, and then you went through a set of procedures, so that happened, and then I got through to uh, a paramedic. And he then interviewed me, and I think we did this twice. Hmm. And um, sorry, I'm just swallowing a bit of breakfast. Um, That's right. Sorry. sorry about that. Um, and um, got through to him twice, and both times he kind of quizzed me, and he got me to do a sort of breathing thing. He said, "How often do, is your breath coming?" So I remember going, "Well, I don't know. It's sort of up to me, really." Anyway, he then dismissed it. He then said, "Well, you know, you haven't got COVID." And then Emma got more and more worried and just by circumstance and luck, and somebody pointed out because we're middle class and we live with the kind of people who are GPs, thank you, um, uh, a friend, a neighbor and a GP came over and um, she had an oximeter. So I didn't know about oximeters and these are like a little crocodile clip that you put over your finger and it can test how well you're taking up oxygen in your body and when she did this it was late at night well in fact she didn't she handed the oximeter to emma emma put it on my thing she said emma uh what's it reading and emma said uh, 58 or 58 15, 60, something like that. and dr katie she immediately uh the, the look of urgency crossed her face because in her words people who have that level um, of uh, comes up on the oximeter, oxygen take up, saturation levels, technically, 
um, they, she'd said she'd never seen anybody conscious at that low level, because you should be between 95 and 100. You know, healthy people are 98, 99. That's and so she urged Emma to take me to the hospital. So Emma, with our daughter Elsie in the back, uh, they drove me to the hospital. Uh, and, and in fact, Dr. Katie had alerted the Whittington, saying, don't put him through the usual triage, um, of, uh, asking his date of birth and the rest of it. Um, and so uh, I was quickly whisked in and masks were put over me. And I went into intensive care for a few days uh, before I got a bit better and then suddenly dipped. And then they came to me and said, uh, are you prepared to go on the ventilator? And I said, what are the chances of my survival? And they said, 50-50. And I said, if I don't go on, and they said, zero. And I remember thinking, oh, that's not bad. 50 is actually quite good, really, all things considered. Note the kind of um, lack of oxygen making me kind of lightheaded here. Um, and so I went under. And then I was in an induced coma for about 40 days in intensive care for about 47, 48 days in all. So um, that's the sort of story of uh, how I got ill and what they did with me in, as, as an outline. There you go. Uh, so we had, that was, as ever, brilliant for Michael. A slight fizziness was accompanying us, a gremlin in the machine, but we have expunged the gremlin in the machine with your fantastic new microphone set so let's hear this one two three four one two three four Love it. dulcet listen to those dulcet tones so as you began to come um emerge from the coma, i mean what was your you know how when when you told you've been 40 days in a coma that kind of stuff and what you've gone through how long did it take you to process it how did you how do you process something like that I think probably about two months, really, um, two and a half, three months. What happened at first was that Emma would tell me when I was, say, in the rehab hospital and they, she met me with the family in the garden and afterwards, she told me um, that I'd been in intensive care and I quite genuinely didn't know what that was. I thought that being in intensive care was where you're cared for intensively. And she tried to explain to me you were... I was in a coma. You had a tracheostomy. And I did, I had a, a thing over here. I had a plaster over my throat. And I remember thinking, why did I have that plaster? And she said, well, they, that's where they were putting the air in. And I said, I don't remember that. And then about two days later, I'd forgotten she had told me. So I had this sort of strange circle where Emma would explain it. I would try to understand it. And then two days later, I'd forgotten it anyway. And this went on for, I think, about, well, two months. I mean, you know, it was pretty irritating for her. She'd say, I told you, I told you, you were in intensive care. You were in a coma. And then I'd sort of tr sit there and try and figure out March. I got ill in March. What happened in April, May? And then the answer was I was dead to the world. I wasn't actually dead, but I was dead to the world. And um, I think that was... Uh, yeah, it was kind of chastening and worrying. And in many ways, until I think um, quite recently, I've, I've sort of been coming to terms with it. So, you know, there's a person who was walking about, there was a person who got ill, there was a person who disappeared, and then there was a person struggling to learn how to stand up and to walk, and with this fuzzy brain and my eye and ear not working, and that's me. So I've got these kind of different people that I'm juggling with in my head. And I guess, you know, anybody, you know, watching this who's had a stroke or a serious accident, heart attack, any of these sorts of things, there is a way in which there's a kind of before the thing, the after, mm -hmm. and you juggle with it. You know, there is a, a sense in which you have a divided personality in some way or another because you aren't exactly what you were, but then nobody is. We're always changing. Um, and then you're this new thing that you're coming to terms with. You know, it's sort of, in a way, new clothes. You know, does it fit this this jacket? Does this, you know, what do I look like? You stare, stare in the mirror and look at this eyeball where the, um, the iris is permanently dilated. So I sort of sit there sort of staring at it going, 
I can just about see that, et cetera, et cetera, you know. That's, that's the kind of way at which it works. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, sorry, my cat is trying to change, trying to steal oh. the line right there. That's, this is Kia, not, not that. Kia, after named after Kia Hardy. Do you want to say hello, Kia? Do you want to just say hello? Do you want to say hello to Mike? Oh, you've, oh, he's not having any of it. Can't even sit there. He is. He's just sitting here, just just naturally poised. Um, not very polite, cats. I've noticed. He's extremely impolite, actually, Michael. Rude, I would say. Very rude. Gratuitously rude. You've spoken about how you you know you've changed, but you don't quite know how. And you talk about how. And we started with how you're recovering. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about that? About because I know again, this is a. I don't know if it's a cliche, but it's a kind of people almost expect you to be changed and transformed by this experience but what in what have you increasingly began to understand in what ways you've 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 changed your outlook who you are anything i think it's a um i think it's just probably a sense of precariousness i mean that uh actually i first met that word uh, the precariat it was um paul mason actually mm -hmm. did he make it up it was it, he was talking about um, young Tunisians who had um, graduated and then discovered that uh, the only job that they could get was making patterns on the top of coffee in Starbucks. And um, yeah, that was he, that was the background to the Tunisian he said It was uh, an essay which became a book. It's all kicking off. And he spoke about the... Uh, about the phenomenon of the graduate without a future, and which is always potentially a... a a danger well can be a, a, you know a dangerous to power social type uh, i don't think he ne no he didn't coin precaria i wouldn't say because guy i think that's become increasingly popularized he helped popularize it let's go with that well um i can't say i've joined the precariat in a, in a financial or material way but I, I did the word kept coming up in my mind that i do feel precarious i think anybody who has one of these serious illnesses or accidents you suddenly feel a kind of vulnerability, a sort of frailty, if you like. I mean, it depends what time in your life. But um, so it is a sense of precariousness. And then that has a knock-on effect about certainty. I guess, you know, there's a certain arrogance of somebody of my background, if you like, of education and, you know, so on you. You learn, my Emma, Emma, she takes the mickey out of it. I sometimes say things that I know absolutely nothing about, but say them with complete certainty. And she kind of goes, you're actually bullshitting, aren't you? And I go, <laughs> yes, actually, yes, I am. So, that, so she spotted that. She calls it, ah, you go into your stentorian tone. That's what she says. And um, I, don't, I don't even know what a stentorian tone is, but obviously I've got it. And, um, yeah, so um, she spotted this, and um, so I guess um, the precariousness, it sort of has had this sort of knock-on effect that if, if I go into, you know, a food shop and then I'm looking at two different things and I don't know what to buy, and there's a sort of whole level of uncertainty. Um, my 16-year-old, <laughs> he spotted it as well. He asked me to cook him some breakfast, you see, and I started getting flustered. And he went, composure, dad, 
composure. He's a football fan. And of course, composure is a big sort of word in football. The commentators use it and, you know, the footballers all use it. And so it's quite funny. I was just trying to poach an egg, you know, a major challenge for me. And I was trying to poach an egg and he could see me going, and he just went, composure. So I put all that together, a little map of all that. And there is this sense of precariousness. And um, there's also the thing about frailty, I guess I discovered is that when you're in hospital, of course you're frail, but you don't own it. They do. I mean, one of the pieces I wrote in in the book is about the idea that they keep a ledger on you. They've got, it's, it's almost like an account and they come to your bedside and they, they, they take the measurements of your blood pressure and your oxygen take-up levels. And then they stand at the end of the bed doing their obs observations, staring at you. So they stare at you for 30 seconds and then write something down. And I sort of thought about this. And then you come out of hospital. It's like coming out of prison. You haven't got any of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got to cook and clean and you've got to and, – and you've – Anything, any little twinge or pain or the fact that the eye gets worse or anything like that, you've got to own it. So I sort of think another thing that I suppose I've discovered is about this business about owning your frailty, Um, that you go from an extreme position where you don't own any of it to then you you own all of it and that, you know, you have to handle it. So, I I mean, it's, I guess, in a way, that's, that's, that's something I've noticed. And then the other thing is... I mean, if I needed any confirmation about it, and it's kind of obvious to me and you, is that the NHS was a staggeringly brilliant and beautiful invention. Mm-hmm. And it, more than that, it expressed an idea that a society is socially responsible for all its members and mm-hmm. that this is the best way to handle it. Um, and that I experienced that in its most extreme form, that mm-hmm. people saved my life i mean i've experienced it in lots of other ways it it saved my life earlier because i have strange autoimmune disease hypothyroidism and and underactive Mm -hmm. thyroid you know i've been there i've children born in in hospital one of them actually in the whittington hi joe um and um but to actually experience the idea that all those hands to the deck whichever metaphor you want to use saved my life and i'm sitting here talking to you because of that mm-hmm. you know is an incredible reminder mm-hmm. of what it was that we my parents i'm thinking of helped you know your parents and so on that they struggled to create because they experienced the 30s the 20s the 30s and the war you know and finding little insurances and then wondering whether you know am i ill enough to pay out some dosh to find a doctor you know all this stuff and, you know, it, obviously it never crossed my mind about going to the hospital, you know, oh, blimey, you know, that's going to take my no claims bonus off, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, what a thing we created. And I think of it as an act of love, of social love. It's saying we care. I care for you, Owen, as much as you care for me, as much as I care for that person there and that person there, complete strangers. Mm. And so there were complete strangers looking after me and then, you know, through whatever system, taxation or whatever, however the finances work, um, I'm caring for them sort of through physically and financially. It's it's like a a a virtuous, that's the word, a virtuous circle, isn't it? Um, I mean, in terms of talking about care and caring for others, I mean, you you wrote and you've spoken very movingly about those health workers when you on intensive care 42 percent died on these packed intensive care units of covid19 um patients and professor hugh montgomery was your consultant and people may have seen him on on television he's he's uh, did a great an incredible job in a viral video at the beginning of the pandemic in explaining how infectious COVID-19 was. It was, it was a really important video actually at the beginning of the pandemic, but he, he spoke about how it was carnage. Um, I mean, when I said, I told people that I was interviewing you, people understand me very excited. And a former nurse said, talked about being a nurse in the seventies and eight hour shifts wearing a lead apron, but nothing compared to what these youngsters, yes, have gone through. Worst of all, we may have had tough days, but on the whole, we were able to care for people and send them home better when they came in. Today's health workers at the time of COVID were reduced to troubleshooting and laying out bodies, all the while compromising 
their own health, dreadful, and then offered a pay cut in essence. So I'm just wondering about, in terms of what you learned about the role of those those health workers who obviously were dealing what you describe as a war zone, you know, they go for a cup of tea and come back and and people, someone else had died. I mean, just, well, you know, because I think in the pandemic, the thing about this pandemic is, you know, far more people have died than died in the Blitz. But in the Blitz, you could kind of see the carnage around you, couldn't you? You could see the rubble. You could see, unfortunately, you could see people maybe who were killed in your own street. But the real carnage of this was focused in principally hospitals. And it was the health workers who saw that. So do you want to just tell me what, what your thoughts about the role of the health workers that looked after you and more generally in this pandemic? I guess two thoughts come immediately to mind. One is how young these people, many many of these nurses and health workers are. And, you know, most of them would have been shielded from death and shielded from the idea that you care for somebody and you try to keep them alive and you may not, as you say, 42% on my ward. So, you know, Hugh Montgomery, you mentioned there, um, he, he talked about, uh, or somebody certainly talked about, that there was a guy on a phone and they went out, popped out, you know, to get something to eat, came back, and the guy was dead because this is the way the virus was working, that it, 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 the inflammation response, whatever it is exactly, that you could just bump, you could just disappear. And they were actually worried that would happen to me or indeed when I was coming round that I'd, I was brain dead, I think was the word that, that Hugh used. Now that you're exposing very young people to this, these are people, you know, some of them uh, only just turned 20. Uh, so that was my first feeling. What, what a burden we've put on thousands of people. Um, and, you know, they're very brave and we don't know yet what kind of long-term effect that will have um, and how they view life and death and their work and so on. And it, it, it is, it's, a, it's a, a difficult thing to cope with. So that's the first. And then the other is that, you know, we've lived, we've talked about this, you know, in, a, in our circles, that we've lived through 40 years of aggression towards migrants. While hand in hand, society relies on migrants, so migrant labour. So the NHS, again, is an absolute kind of model of it that, you know, you lie in bed. So I'm thinking of myself lying in bed, both when I came round and also in the rehab hospital. And there are people that I'm talking to in uniform who are coming from Brazil, the Caribbean, from Uganda, from Ireland, um, you know, each day somebody would come in and and if we started chatting and so on, it would just keep you going, really. I would say, oh, and where do you come from? And suddenly it would be another place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so here was I being looked after and brought round to the world by people who themselves had come from places all over the world and they were enabling me to survive. This is not just, you know, isn't it nice that... Um, you know, this really nice curry you can get down the road, which, by the way, I love, so I'm not doing that down. But this was actually a matter of survival through the labours of people who had come from all over the world. So, you know, I've, I see it on social media, you know, these front pages of, from, the, by and large, the Daily Express, but other newspapers as well, you know, full of kind of hating and suspicion. I can go back to the 60s. Um, and the whole, you know, Smethwick row and, and Enoch Powell and so on, as if somehow or other migrants are a threat and have undermined something or ruined something. And here's me surviving because of migrants. Well, I mean, my family's a migrant family anyway. I only have to go back to grandparents and great-grandparents. Well, my dad was technically a migrant. He came from, he was born in America. Um, but, you know, the idea that migrants are other and somehow or other making us less, you know, and here was me saying migrants making things more, making me better. And so I couldn't have wanted, or so I couldn't have needed, if you like, a better model for what it is that we are and who we are and how we are. And, um, you know, it's, again, it's, it's sometimes quite hard to do this because the news is, you know, a boat's fetched up in Dover or something, and then that's the idea, that's who all migrants are. 
are, you know, poor folks coming from originally from Syria, you know, running away from, I mean, Jeremy Bowen on the news last night showed the sort of devastation in Syria. I, God, it was like, mm -hmm. you know, Second World War in Hiroshima, you know, it was unbelievable. Um, and you think there's that, but they've, that's, that what's happened is that they've succeeded in making the iconography, the imagery of the migrant as a threat. And here am I surviving because of it. I mean, I've, you know, it's, it moves me to think about it. I know we don't have long. You're very busy talking about this brilliant book, which everyone does need to, to read and buy. But before, just but I asked you about the politics of it. I mean, COVID deniers, of which most people in the country, it's a fringe phenomenon, COVID-19 denial. Uh, the vast majority of people accept it's a very serious illness, uh, which requires very serious measures to tackle. Um, but you do get a disproportionately loud vocal minority amplified often by right-wing shock jocks and the rest. How, given what you've gone through, how do you feel when you hear COVID denial and, and those who vociferously oppose measures to, to prevent the spread of this terrible virus? I think at first I was actually hurt by it. I mean, I came out thinking, wow, you know, whew. I've got through that. Thousands haven't. I read an article in The Guardian about how bus drivers were uh, unprotected in their cabs up until, I think, mid-April. And, uh, you know, a, a significant cluster of deaths around bus drivers. Um, and then suddenly I, I was connecting with these deniers and also with people that whatever measure people were taking, they were shooting down. So you had Toby Young at the very moment that my life was being saved by being on a ventilator, was writing an article saying that uh, ventilators are no are useless, I think he said, and um, I, think, I think his word was actually harmful, or, or words to that effect. You know, I want to make sure I get it right. But he used the word harmful and useless uh, or causing harm to describe it at the very moment that my life was being saved. And you think... What is going on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I watched a, a guy on the telly um, and the interviewer said, you're not wearing a mask. And he said, well, I haven't seen anybody. Who's, I haven't heard of any. I haven't seen anybody around here who's, who's died of it. And I thought, in fact, I think somebody else, it's somebody else's idea. You know, we hear every day, you know, they expose us in the press to murders. You know, murder makes sells newspapers. So they tell us about murders. But you don't see people in the street, you know, if you put a microphone in front of somebody and said, so nobody's being murdered, eh? Um, so it's a weird mismatch between believing in murders, even though you don't know anybody who's been murdered, but not believing in COVID because you haven't seen anybody who's got COVID and who's died of it. And so what is that about? Some people have suggested that it's a fear response, is that it's so terrifying, the idea of an invisible virus we've seen it in movies it's in sci-fi you know the, the the idea that there's this thing and if i sneeze on you or if i walk into a room where other people might have it but it's not visible um that you can get it and then within two weeks three weeks you could die it's almost too fearful a thing to contemplate so why not say it doesn't exist i mean that's a, a kind of human response in a way i'll sort of blink it away i mean believe it or not, when my son died, I actually said, I will pretend for as long as it helps that he hasn't. So it is a human response. It makes your, your inner core safe. So you say it isn't there. And then, as you say, the right wing have leapt on it um, as if somehow or other it's a kind of weird lefty conspiracy to invent a, a virus. And I've seen, as it happens, lefties saying that, you know, look, Look at all these authoritarian measures. Look at all these profits they've made. That proves that it's actually a right-wing conspiracy. And, and you think, hang on, guys, you know, let's get with the rationality. Let's get with the science. Let's remind ourselves of what a virus is. It's this strange thing, but it's a strange thing. It isn't a full living organism. It can only survive in its host. We spread it to each other. Just go back to the basic biology, you know, and after all, you know, all these COVID deniers, one of the reasons why they've gone quiet is because they're all going get, going out getting vaccinated, aren't they? Uh, I mean, 
uh, I think I put up a tweet saying, you know, if you're a COVID denier, can you tell me if you're vaccinated? And of course, people have said all sorts of jokes about it. But I mean, it, it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, there are some people who are not only COVID deniers, they're anti-vaxxers. So, you know, <laughs> mind you, whoosh, there goes a UFO, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all part of the same thing. So, you know, quite disconcertingly, it's not just a righty-lefty thing that's done a bit of COVID denying. Um, it, it seems to have been a very special cluster around this zone we're in, around conspiracy theories, where, of course, there are reasons to sometimes think that people get together, powerful people get together in a room and plan things. You know, they do. It's, it's called the cabinet. You know, you don't have to think of a conspiracy. There's a, there's, a, there's a door. You go in and there's the cabinet. And what do they do? They plan things, some of which the likes of me and you disapprove of. So, of course, it, it's just, you know, one of the loony things about some of the conspiracy theories is that they end up with a, with a, a kind of paranoid situation in which anything or everything mm-hmm can be a conspiracy as i think i once wrote you know if you really think about it um and look at the sky you know clouds are conspiring against the sun you know i can see you i can see what you're doing you clouds you're, you're gathering together and, and you're stopping the sun getting through you know so you know you, if you work at it you can make anything a conspiracy which is the final finally the, what i wanted to ask you about was I mean, one in 500 people or so have been killed by the pandemic in this country. We have one of the worst death tolls on the face of the earth, one of the worst death rates on the face of the earth, huge amounts of human misery. I mean, we talk, obviously, the deaths are bad enough, but there are also people with long COVID. There are people like yourself who have been very seriously ill and still suffer the consequences today. How do you feel about how the government, which have catastrophically managed the this crisis at every turn i interviewed the authors of a new book failures of state about the disastrous handling they didn't just delay lock lockdown measures once they didn't just delay it twice they delayed it three times march september december with a tidal wave of death as a consequence of that but also the failure of the labor party because the labor party have failed well i think they've just given up being in opposition um but they haven't pinned this horror was absolute horror on the government. And that's enabled the government to get away with one of the most catastrophic handlings of this pandemic on the face of the earth. So I'm just interested about both of those things. Uh, well, as you might guess, I, I more or less agree with, with all of that. Um, I'd factor in also this crucial thing that I, that I talked about, about the herd immunity, that in that moment, February and March, they were juggling with the idea that the infection could run through the population. And even if they never said it directly, it happened de facto. So it actually happened. So the test trace and isolate, and it could have been with quarantining of people arriving, that if they had implemented at that point, the extent of the virus and its ability to take root in the whole of society, I mean, that's the problem, it's everywhere now. But if they had done that at the very beginning, we would have seen a very different picture. Then, of course, they had to bring in lockdowns because they had already failed. So the first lockdown was actually, though necessary, was in its own way an admission of failure. Now, I would have hoped and would have thought, you know, there are doctors in the Labour Party. The moment that thing came over the horizon that we're going to play around with this herd immunity, the Labour Party could have run a press conference with a, a row of doctors in front of them there, doctors, surgeons, people, experts in in epidemiology, and said, this is a lethal, illogical, ascientific, unscientific approach. They could have put themselves in opposition to what these government scientists were saying and saying this will bring about the deaths of tens of thousands of people. It was entirely predictable. I mean, people were saying it, but they were off-centre. You know, they were over there saying it. I mean, obviously, there was independent sage saying it. But what the Labour Party could have done is given it some political oomph. But for whatever reasons, and you will know this better than me, I've never been a member of the Labour Party apart from 12 months when I was 14. Um, I was a Labour Party. Anyway, whatever I was. Okay, ignore that. And so, you know, what a what a tragedy that there wasn't a political voice to say that... 
this is no coincidence that a government composed of people like that have this eugenicist idea, this idea that is endangering the lives of tens of thousands of people. What do you know? There's Dominic Cummings who had expressed eugenicist ideas in relation to education. They'd brought in the guy, I'm not gonna remember his name begins with S, uh, who they found out that, uh, Sabisky, I think his name was, um, who, had, who had talked eugenics openly and they had to dump him because the press were onto it. Mm -hmm. So these ideas circulated and the Labour Party could have said, look, you know, eugenics rears its head in history and in time, you know, in a variety of ways and in surprising quarters. And look, it's going on now in the face of this virus. And there were people who, who were saying that, but the Labour Party could have, the Labour government, the Labour Party, Labour opposition could have brought it centre stage and made it part of the argument instead of leaving it to interviewers sitting there rather kind of, mutely or as it happens it was newsnight while this government scientist said we will create we have to create herd immunity you know and instead of just whacking some a-level biology at him and saying where's your ethics pal you know who, who who's going to die you know and meanwhile at that very moment they were decanting people who were infected old people infected decanting them from hospitals into care homes where, of course, it ran rife and, you know, even by the conservative estimates, probably 20,000 lost their lives. And again, you know, there's no but about it, but, you know, but they're over 80 or whatever, but they've got Alzheimer's. Um, so, you know, here was a here is a political issue. You know, I know we must always be very careful about analogies and so on. But the point is, we know from the middle of the 20th century, when governments of any kind, of any hue, write off chunks of people, nationalities of people, people because of whatever they're born with as being unnecessary, then we are on the, we are in the midst of, never mind on the slippery slope towards, we are in the midst of the worst excesses of the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. You're in the midst of wiping out. You're saying, we'll wipe that lot out, liquidate, eliminate, you know, that's, that's what was involved. And if that isn't an issue, for social democrats, if that isn't an issue for liberals of some kind or other, then what is? Very finally, because your time is extremely valuable, what gives you hope? What gives you optimism in a time like this and after what you've gone through? Those nurses and doctors and health workers. I mean, no question of it. If I want or looking for a model of how it is we can behave to each other, for each other, for society, then I look at the way, you know, those those people talk, the way they behave, what they've done. You know, when I've seen them talking on TV, when I just remember waves of them by my bedside, I mean, I know it's a very egocentric way of looking at it, but of course they're doing the same to thousands of others across the country that that is a model, that we have it within us to care for each other, to look out for each other, and to think about the world. I mean, it, I don't know if you ever watched 24 Hours in A&E, that in extremists, when we're at our limits and we see people who are able-bodied helping the people at their limits, you know, and through work, this is, this is work. You know, it, it's not just Sisters of Mercy. We're not talking about as it were, people doing it out of religious conviction and, and good luck to them. You know, I don't want to diminish that in any way. We're seeing people working part of an industry, the health industry. And for me, that offers us a model of caring, of cooperation, of moving towards an objective. But who's at the center of it? The human. So it's a humanistic thing. It's saying human life is what matters and what counts. And so for me, that gives me hope. I mean, you know, there's a moment in the film with the film that's been on ITV where Hugh Montgomery says, you know, and, it, it, and he's, he's sort of stumbling because it's got a really profound thought. He's saying, I know it sounds strange, but, you know, when an epidemic or something like this comes along, there's part of me that says, yes, because he's rolling up his sleeves and he's getting on with making life better for human beings. It's, it's, awful it's desperate everybody else you know experienced fear but he's thinking 
well, what if I could, if I could do this and if I could do that? Ah, well, what if we did a vent? No, what if we, ah, blood thinners. Yes, that's what we need to do. So he's all his thought, all his knowledge and his skill. And it's the same for the nurses. I mean, the nurses mm -hmm. who were, hell, wiping my bum because I was unconscious, they were making it possible for me to live. So it's not just, obviously, Wunderkinder like, like Hugh Montgomery. It's at every level, survival is what matters. And it's being done in this cooperative way, funded either directly or indirectly by all of us. So it's like a, you know, a level of mutuality that is a model for all of us. Hope? Yeah, you bet. Michael, that was very, very inspiring and, and moving. And, you know, your writing is always a joy, uh, had a big impact. And those of us, including those of us who, who grew up having your books uh, read to us. Uh, so an integral part of the childhoods of millions and millions of people. Uh, but this book is, is it's a genuine, it's a, a, a beautifully written must read, which really does examine a question about life, questions about life or death that people otherwise find difficult to to talk about. And you do it so beautifully and it's so brilliant to see you smiling, beaming, uh, full of life. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your thoughts, your your time with us. Thanks a lot, Owen. Great talking with you. And uh, may we do it again on who knows, other subjects or whatever. That's, uh, exactly, in yeah. person maybe. Mm. Cheers, Very Mike. good. All the best to you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you got a lot from that. If you want to support us, you can use patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84 and help suggest what we talk about, the topics, the people we speak to. Uh, please do subscribe and give us five stars to help the algorithm encourage other people to listen to it too. With all that, I hope you're well and I will speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.